Welcome to episode 70, Reinforcing Recovery, Rethinking Self-Defeating Beliefs, featuring Marty Lithgow, Licensed Advanced Alcohol and Drug Counselor, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Marty Lithgow. Uh, Marty is an addiction counselor and he has been in the field since 1985. He has served in a number of different roles, including uh, working at hospital-based care all the way down through outpatient. And he is the co-founder of the Genesis program in Ventura, California. Uh, Marty, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to participate in this. Uh, it is our pleasure to have you. So, Marty, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to be in this line of work? I uh, didn't get into this line of work with any great dream of really even helping people or saving lives. Uh, fact was, I needed a job. I was in treatment myself at the time, and after having taken a, a semester off from college, uh, 15 years later, I ended up getting sober myself. And while I was in a treatment program, I knew that I didn't want to go back into construction work for two reasons. It was too hard on my body, and I didn't think I could stay clean going back into construction and I found out while I was in treatment that I enjoyed talking to people. I, I enjoyed uh, the dynamics of, of group process. And uh, I thought I could maybe do this and uh, was fortunate enough to have the opportunity uh, to do that. And so I went back to school and uh, started my career. And I, I've just been very fortunate in the way that it's gone. It sounds like for you, this is really personal and wanting to be in this field and also give back to something that you've enjoyed um, the fruits of. It has become very personal. It really didn't start out that way. <laughs> and I just believe that uh, sometimes we take initial steps and we don't know where God is leading us. And I just feel like this has become a calling. And so I've stayed in it for a long time now, over 30 years. Uh, Marty, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your education and your specialization in the addiction field? When I had left college, I was about six units short of my bachelor's degree and was in the process of getting my teaching credential at the same time and dropped out. Didn't get back for a long time. I found out that... Uh, Actually, at, at the time, at Ventura Community College, uh, they had an addiction studies program. And uh, in a couple of years, I could get some kind of certification that it would at least open a door for me. Uh, I had a, a gentleman who was a mentor at that time, and I discussed with him the benefits of going back to school and completing my bachelor's degree or getting my certification through an organization that was at that time called KDAC. And he suggested that getting my KDAC certification would open more doors for me in the addiction field than my bachelor's degree, and I could always go back and get that. And so I started at Ventura College, uh, completed a two-year program, which I found actually really, really excellent, 
that program is now at Oxnard College. And uh, I got my certification through KDAC, which is an organization that is now called CCAP. Uh, I also got a, a certification through NADAC, which is a national organization, uh, and that's a tough one to get. Uh, it required uh, uh, 10,000 hours of experience, supervised, and uh, then taking a test, of course, and having an oral exam, and uh, it was quite challenging. And so uh, that those are the certifications that I still carry this day. Um, well, thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise. So today we're going to be talking about kind of the belief systems that underlie addiction. And your specialization is in not only addiction, but also in codependency. So I'm looking forward to kind of hearing about that overlap. Um, why don't we start by just having you share a little bit about how you see thoughts contribute to behaviors as it relates to addiction specifically. One of the things I do with the clients that I work with is, is I do it very early on. I help them to understand the relationship between our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior. Um, clients who are beginning early recovery, whether their recovery is from uh, addiction or codependency uh, are oftentimes confused. They feel perhaps hopeless, certainly powerless. Uh, whatever they've been doing to try and either control their their drinking or using or to help their loved one hasn't been working or they wouldn't be seeing me in the first place. And so it's, it's just introducing them to, to the fact that what they're feeling is pretty normal for their situation and that they actually can have some power. Uh, and I, I think it's a very empowering thing to introduce the concept that if we can go back and look at their thinking and that maybe they're just believing and operating on some incorrect beliefs, it will have great impact on changing the way they feel, which is what they're really looking for, and that that will also allow them to change their behavior, the things that they do. And what are some of the common beliefs that accompany active addiction before they've made the step uh, toward recovery? There's some doozies. <laughs> uh, in, that, in active addiction, uh, I had actually started making a list and it just kept getting longer and, and longer. Uh, these are some of the thoughts that I think a, a drug abuser or an abusive drinker, I think these are some of the thoughts that they have. I can handle it. I can control it. I won't become addicted. That That's primary. Nobody ever starts out with the goal of becoming addicted, with the goal of losing control. They all think they can control it. Another thought is, if I ever experience blank, if I ever lose my job, if I ever go to jail, then I'll stop. If I ever get caught, then I'll stop. Oftentimes they think, I'm only smoking marijuana. It's not like I'm using hard drugs. And so they minimize in, in their own mind uh, that, that thinking. Uh, or... Perhaps it's their route of administration. I'm only snorting cocaine 
I'm not smoking it. I'm not injecting it. And so it's, again, that, that minimizing. Uh, often a thought is, uh, if you had to work with, live with, be married to, uh, the put up with the things that I have to go through, you would use too. And so they justify uh, in that way. Uh, and the biggest I think the biggest false belief in it, they really do believe it, I certainly believed it, is that I'm not hurting anyone but myself. Why don't they leave me alone? These belief systems, how do you see them kind of taking shape um, when you have somebody knowing that pretty much all of the substances that we could come up with have their own uh, different rates of of addiction, I guess, um, you know, how likely it is that one person could use it and how likely they uh, become addicted after a certain number of uses or even after one use. So when we're looking at substances that, of course, have an inherent addiction component, um, how do you see in your practice that these belief systems kind of develop over time, that it starts at, at, at a party and they use a substance one time and then it's kind of that slippery slope? Certainly different drugs, uh, the addiction process proceeds at different rates. Uh, in the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, there's a phrase that they use that I think is a very powerful phrase. It talks about getting to a place of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that becomes the, the baseline, the, the trigger point for approaching recovery. Uh, Alcohol is a drug that it may take years and years to get to that point. Number one, it's legal. It's socially acceptable. It's, uh, you know, just a lot of situations that people are involved in. Alcohol is involved as well. That's why we have cocktail parties and things like that. So it may take a long time for someone who only uses alcohol to, to really become uh, dependent, become addicted to, the, to that drug. Drugs like methamphetamine, the beauty of those drugs, it'll get you to that point of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization really fast. And, and so they're different, you know, and I, I've heard people share about, you know, from their first use, they felt that they were addicted and that they lost control of their drug use right off the bat. So this idea of control is pretty central to what it means to have an addiction. And, and of course, it's a really big theme in 12-step of loss of control. Um, tell us more about how thinking contributes to that either perceived control or actual loss of control. Again, going back to the relationship between thinking and feelings and, and behavior, um, people use substances primarily to change the way they feel. If they didn't have that effect, if, if they didn't uh, change the way they felt, people would not use them. Uh, people go through a process, whether it's acquiring a taste for scotch or uh, learning to smoke marijuana or whatever it is, if that process didn't have a reward at the end of it, uh, changing the way they felt, getting them high, getting them somehow uh, emotionally altered, uh, they wouldn't continue to do it. Well, it also affects the way they think. 
as their feelings change, that's also going to affect their thinking, which is going to affect their behavior, which is going to affect the way they feel. No one starts out using to feel bad. They start out using to feel good or to feel better than whatever situation they're in. And I think over time, what happens is that the bad feelings, maybe the uncomfortable feelings that they may be wanting to change with their use of chemicals, um, that works. It changes the way they feel, but it's non-selective. And as the use progresses, as the tolerance builds, as the uh, loss of control becomes more imminent, uh, it is not only blocking out those uncomfortable feelings, those negative feelings, it's blocking out all their feelings. And so it's very common when I see someone uh, for the first times and they're seeking, they're beginning their, their search for recovery, they're very detached from their feelings. And that goes whether they be a, a, a drug abuser or a codependent, e either way, they're very detached from their feelings. And so we begin to explore their feelings, and then we work backwards from there and say, and begin to examine what their thought patterns are that lead to those feelings. If I can get them to understand that thinking precedes feelings, that there's a, a automatic thought, is what Albert Ellis called it, automatic thoughts that, that are in that process, then they can begin to, I think, feel empowered to change their thinking. So tell me more about the relationship between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, just kind of the fundamental cognitive behavioral perspective on that. And then I want to go to into how that gets affected by addiction, but let's just start kind of with the underlying um, pattern or cycle of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Many years ago, Everyone in the world believed that the earth was flat. If that's your belief, that you believe that is the truth, then it's going to greatly affect how you feel going on a cruise. You're going to have anxiety out there on a, on a cruise, and it's not going to be a very enjoyable experience. And I use that simple example uh, to help the clients understand that relationship between thinking and feeling. What happens in the, especially in the addictive process, is that it doesn't really matter which comes first, I don't think, whether it's the thoughts, the feelings, or, or the behavior, uh, but they're all going to have that interaction and that they're related to each other. In AA, in 12-step programs, it's really behavioral modification. Stop drinking, go to meetings, hang out with sober people, make behavioral changes. And, and what they say is we will act our way into right thinking. And, and I think that's, that's really important in the recovery from addiction is the behavioral change. But I've found that unless we change the thinking process, because uh, that really is the issue in recovery. Once someone stops drinking or using, then it's all about surviving our feelings because we're not equipped to do that. You know, addicts in early recovery uh, have been sedating, uh, self-medicating their feelings for a long time, 
and they don't have the skills or the tools to deal with with their emotions. They've just been burying them, and and so in that way, uh, it's just about the relationship between the three. And in my perspective and in my practice, uh, it doesn't really matter where we start. I go back over and over again. I use a diagram of. of the, the relationship between thinkings, feelings, and, and behavior. I can see how the introduction of a substance would really interrupt that, that you could have a thought and then a feeling, um, which w- if you had a substance at that moment, uh, when you started having the feeling, it would alter your feeling and that would alter your behavior and that it, it would basically take the cycle and kind of hijack it. Tell us more about how that plays out in addiction when the addiction itself is interrupting the cycle of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Remember that substance use changes the way we feel. Over time, as as people build tolerance and, and it takes more and more of the substance to have that same effect, it begins to lose some of its effectiveness. And so what initially perhaps Use alcohol, for instance. What initially uh, in our society, people uh, learn to drink and they find out that alcohol maybe makes them funnier, uh, wittier. It made me a much better dancer. Uh, and so uh, it, it has a positive impact, you know. And I think with any substance, if you were to plot it on a graph, the initial use of the substance is very positive. There's a lot of positive reward. It levels off as we build tolerance and it takes more and more of the substance. And then the drug that initially made us feel good, made us happy, uh, helped us maybe avoid feelings we weren't comfortable with, it sort of turns on us. In, in AA, that you'll hear people say, the alcohol quit working for me. Now, I don't think that means that they don't get intoxicated, uh, but I think that what it means is that instead of causing them to feel better, it begins to produce feelings like anxiety, uh, depression, uh, hopelessness, like that, and, and it's just not working anymore. It sounds like there then is an inconsistency between the way that thoughts used to influence feelings and then lead to a certain behavior. When addiction comes into play, that feeling changes. And then the, the, so there's the initial use and the early use, but then how it shifts over time. And so you don't end up getting the feeling you want, which I'm sure contributes to different belief systems of maybe if I use more, maybe if I use differently. And so again, we're starting to kind of Uh, dissect how thoughts, feelings, and behaviors either reinforce the use of addiction or could potentially lead to recovery. Um, You have so much experience working in this field. When it comes to you working with someone who is still actively using, how do you bring in this concept of thoughts, feelings, and behavior? If they're coming to see me, it's apparent that something's not working. They wouldn't be there in the first place. Now, they may not want to be there. I, I'm of the belief that uh, p- most people begin uh, don't begin recovery entirely voluntarily. 
that there is someone applying some leverage. There's somebody twisting their arm. They're about to lose something, be it their job, their family, uh, their freedom, uh, whatever. And, and I think there's a lot of studies that demonstrate it really doesn't matter uh, why they start, that, that people who are coerced into treatment actually have just as good a recovery rate as people who come voluntarily. I, I try to help people understand that what once worked for them isn't working as well, and that because it's not working as well to, to uh, subdue those uncomfortable feelings or to make them feel better, uh, that the feelings they're experiencing, the, the anxiety, depression, self-pity, uh, hopelessness, uh, the very feelings they were trying to avoid by use of the chemical uh, are now the chemical is causing that. And it is those feelings that allow the addict to justify behaviors that are illegal, immoral, contrary to their own values. And, and so it's a, it's a, vicious, a vicious cycle. And I, I, do, I do a lot of education with them to help them understand that because they need to know the truth. And I think that's the truth of the situation. And what they've been believing is the lie. You've mentioned a couple times the belief system or the values. How do you see that coming into play with our feelings and our beliefs and how that either supports or helps um, somebody move away from addiction? I really try to reinforce with my clients that uh, some of the feelings that they're coming to me with, uh, feelings like regret, remorse, uh, their conscience is bothered, that that's really a good sign. The guilt that they feel, it can really be a positive sign. It can be a a motivator to change. And it it tells me, and I try and remind them that, that, it says that they have values. And so then we begin to to look at what some of those values are. And, you know, I do all of that through, uh, I do a real lengthy assessment process. And I, I try to explore not just the uh, immediate issue that brought them in my door, but also, you know, background and what were their family values and, and you know, what are their their sense of right and wrong and the things that they were taught and that they learned as children, even, and they grew up with. I've learned over the years that those original values, those original beliefs are really challenging, really challenging to change and to let go of, to consider other ways of looking at things. And so that's, that's kind of our working area. I can see how some values would be motivating um, in the recognition that a behavior is inconsistent with the value because of addiction. But I could also see how certain values support addiction or might just be kind of shame inducing to get caught in this cycle of perceived worthlessness or hopelessness and kind of um, what Brene Brown calls a shame spiral. Um, Again, that goes back to the interplay of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. What about for folks that are in early recovery? 
how do you see kind of, I guess, working within the space of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and how that's different than working with someone who's still actively using? People who are in early recovery, that they are um, you know, at least uh, physically stabilized, uh, they're, they're beyond uh, any detoxification process, they've, they've begun uh, some kind of active, maybe it's involvement in twelve-step program that they're they're seeking and and acting uh, in a trying to act at least in a recovery-oriented mode. They still bring a lot of that thinking with them in, into their recovery. It's not like they got sober and everything changed overnight. And so, you know, what they bring with them uh, most commonly are things like that, that all or nothing thinking, that polarized way of looking at things that, that doesn't leave much middle ground. Um, they tend to be, take everything very personally and they over-personalize uh, most situations. And so then they end up getting their feelings hurt over situations that really don't involve them. You know, in my first year of recovery, my first sponsor, I think the only phrase he had, it's the only thing I remember saying to me was, Marty, it's none of your business. <laughs> Marty, it doesn't involve you. Marty, it's none of your business. And because uh, I I think most addicts are very sensitive. I was a very sensitive person, and I, I took things very personally. And uh, I had to learn I had to learn differently. You know? um, addicts come into early recovery still with a habit pattern of blaming, you know, and, and difficulty accepting their responsibility for situations, looking at their role in things. And they, they tend to place blame on, on other people. Um, and many of them I found, uh, come from, from situations that they have a, a, a very rigid belief system about how they should be, how others should be, how the world should be. Uh, and, uh, it's, they have a very rigid set of rules, uh, maybe that they, they learned in their childhood family. Um, but. We have to explore and examine each one of those and, and ask, you know, how, how is that working for you? One thing I'm noticing while we're talking is kind of the intersection between not only cognitive behavior therapy, but also the different schools of thought regarding addiction. I noticed in your answer, you use the word addicts, which is something that we use in 12-step. Um, and depending on what, what, um, school of thought really you operate from, knowing that you come from a background, a 12-step, we use different language. Um, how do you, I'm curious, how do you feel like the language of 12-step influences thoughts, feelings, or behaviors? Because I know that some people are um, hesitant to embrace that language of saying, you know, my name is so-and-so and I am an addict, and that that word can inspire a lot of shame or guilt. Um, what are your thoughts on even just people's thoughts about that or their feelings or behaviors of folks that are in recovery, because it is, it is different language. I use the term addict. Some of it is from my 12-step background, but some of it, is, for me, is just a matter of convenience. It's just a mouthful to talk about substance use disorder and, and disordered using and things like that. It's just easy. 
I come from a strong 12-step background, but the reality is I have not been involved in 12-step programs myself actively for some time. In the process of my recovery, um, I became a Christian. And as I studied the Bible, there were phrases like, you're a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away. All things are new. And so I found it conflicting in my own mind to continue to identify as an addict. You know, I've been clean for over 35 years. And so to continue to identify as an addict, uh, I have a problem with that. You know, actually, I, I do workshops at an NA men's retreat, and I always, to make a point with the guys, I always say, you know, my name's Marty, and uh, I'm a husband and a father and a, and a counselor. And, a, you know, I go on and on and on, and, and I'm also a recovering addict. But when I first got clean, that was my identity. I was an addict. I knew that. I knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. I didn't know I was any of those other things yet. Those were gifts of recovery. It sounds like that goes back to beliefs and values and kind of self-identity, how you were seeing yourself, that at that point, you were viewing yourself purely as somebody experiencing addiction, purely as an addict, and needing to build out those other areas to kind of find yourself and find hope that you could be more than just this kind of dirty word. Um, I know for me, 12-step, that's one of the kind of soft spots uh, for me about 12-step is the use of the word addict. Because when I think about it, there are a few things that I think many of us would ever want to stand up and say about ourselves. You know, it's, it's a dirty word. It's not a, it's not a compliment. Usually when we say somebody is an addict and it's interesting because when we're having this conversation about thoughts, feelings, beliefs, values, how all of these kind of crash into each other in whether someone's self-perceived experience of being an addict is actually something that can motivate them to uh, to find recovery, or if it's something that could also be shaming and how their thoughts about that are going to influence their subsequent feelings and behaviors about even just that, that label, what it means to be a substance user, what it means to be a quote-unquote addict. It's why 12-step programs are anonymous programs. The, the use of the term addict or the use of the term alcoholic, which have become just common identifiers in 12-step meetings, are meant to be used in 12-step meetings with other recovering people who also have the same identification. Uh, I would never suggest that someone goes out and puts on their website, you know, that, you know, yeah, I'm a painter and I'm also an addict. Probably not going to get much work. So I don't advertise uh, publicly uh, giving up that information. And I, and I have to, in my counseling practice, that becomes an issue often that helping people safeguard themselves and, and learn who to divulge that information to and who not to tell. I'm glad we kind of went on this little tangent because I think it is part of 
the beast that is recovery. I think this idea of how we represent ourselves in the community, um, whether you're someone who works in the recovery community or whether you're someone who is in recovery yourself, how we talk about it. Um, I know I hear that come up in circles all the time of, you know, whether it's an AOD counselor or a drug counselor or um, a uh, addictions counselor, we can say it lots of different ways. And I'm glad that you bring up how someone is self-identifying not only in a meeting, but also out in the community. And it, I think it goes back to the complexity of treating addiction and the fact that there are, there are a number of different ways to find treatment. You know, we, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about something like 12 set versus smart recovery or refuge recovery in different theoretical models it sounds like fundamentally, regardless of that, there's still this interplay of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh, why don't you give us some examples of how you've seen that play out in your practice and um, how you've worked with clients to really identify those automatic negative thoughts and the feelings that are coming into play when they're newly sober or even long-term sober and having to contend with really unpleasant emotions that are coming up in response to these thoughts? People in early recovery still begin their recovery with a lot of, of feelings that are a result of some of their distorted thinking. Uh, people in early recovery are often, uh, uh, they're angry, they're resentful, uh, they're frustrated by their own inability to control their using and how they got into this situation in the first place because that, that wasn't their goal. They're often sad, uh, depressed, discouraged, uh, maybe hopeless, uh, unhappy, and certainly situationally, usually they have good reason to be to be uh, all those things. Uh, they're they're very scared, you know. They're very scared. They uh, for usually a good period of time they've learned how to live life uh, using substances. You know, they've learned how to get by and somehow maybe hold on to a job and, and on the outside look like they're, they're, they're doing okay with the use of substances. They don't have a clue about how to do that clean and sober, you know, and, and so it, it's very frightening. They wouldn't admit that, but usually but it's very frightening. They're usually embarrassed, uh, guilty, ashamed, um, you know, by their situation and, and, and by literally by the things that they've done and that have uh, violated not only their own values, but common societal values. And, uh, and oftentimes they feel hopeless, confused, helpless, certainly insecure. So they've got all these feelings that I have to tr try and draw out of them because they're detached, they, they, but they're there and they have no tool to deal with them other than to use substances, you know. And so if they're going to, to stay clean, if they're going to, uh, we've got to give them some, some tools to survive those feelings, uh, to learn that those are pretty natural, normal feelings. Everyone experiences them to some degree or another. Uh, it's just new for them in a way. They, they may have forgotten what it was like to feel those feelings before they started using using substances. The same is true for codependence. They have all those same kind of feelings, uh, and the only way they know to survive those feelings 
is probably to default to their old patterns of trying to control or enable or rescue or, or whatever aspect of, of codependency uh, suits them. Uh, that becomes their, their default pattern. And, and so got all these feelings they don't know how to deal with. And again, I think we have to work backward to the thinking that that is the mo- more effective way. You, changing the way we feel, we really have very little control over our feelings. Feelings are just feelings. And one of the things I learned in early recovery is that feelings are not facts. They're just feelings. And But if we can go back and see that we're experiencing some of those feelings based on incorrect thinking, that we're believing things that aren't necessarily true. I'll give you an example. Probably 70% of my practice is not working with substance abusers. It's working with moms and wives and and brothers and sisters. It's working with people with codependency. Now, codependency's kind of become a dirty word, just like addict. But <laughs> uh, those are the people I'm I'm working with uh, quite quite often. And and one of the things that, especially moms, moms will believe that if they stop enabling, then their loved one is going to be sleeping in the park, is going to be living in the river bottom, uh, is going to be immediately in prison. And those things are very rarely true. The reality is that probably the, the substance abuser will find someone else to enable them <laughs> to, to, to support their, their ongoing um, addiction. Uh, and so we have to really work with the, the loved one to, to look at reality. That, that's not true. Have, has your son ever been homeless and lived in the river bottom? Well, no. no. So, you know, that's a, a thought, a thought that we have to challenge because it's causing great feelings of anxiety and fear and hopelessness for for the mom. It sounds like what you're noticing is this thought, which is my child is going to end up homeless or or something awful. And then the feeling, which I imagine is probably out of control and hopeless and terrified, anxious, and then this resulting behavior, which can sometimes perpetuate the addictive disorder in that loved one um, because of making a choice and to perhaps not hold boundaries or whatever it is. So again, you can. It sounds like you're saying even teasing out that underlying belief or that underlying thought, how it creates a feeling and then is resulting in a behavior that again is either supporting recovery or is supporting continued addiction. Um, what are some other examples that you have of folks that are in active substance recovery? and how you've seen that play out. Um, if you can think of a specific case example and share with us, of course, respecting the privacy of that individual, but how you were able to work with that. And as you explored it, kind of what um, what interventions you use and how you approach that. I think of an example of a, a mom who came to me, a mom who is a, a professional, uh, a very respected uh, 
in her in her field. Uh, she's an educator and uh, just a, a really strong and, and powerful woman with a son uh, who abused alcohol, cocaine, uh, got into methamphetamine, and was just his addiction was progressing and getting worse and worse and worse. And mom had a pattern of letting him live with her, supporting him, not charging him rent. Uh, he didn't work. She gave him money. Typical stuff that, that we see in, in that kind of enabling uh, behavior. It took me probably close to two years. And it's all, you know, it's not an overnight thing that happens. Then she finally sees the light and changes the way she does things. But to help her to understand that helping wasn't helping because I think all codependent people, and it can be a fine line between helping and enabling, between helping and rescuing. And, uh, but to get her to really see that all of her helping, her, her well-intentioned because she loved him and cared about him helping, wasn't helping. And usually it was, over that period of time, was oftentimes, you know, three steps forward and two steps back and two steps forward and three steps back. And, and it, it went like that. But finally, she was able to let go. And she had a strong belief in God and to trust that God had good plans for her son, just as he did for her, and to let go. And when she did, he got into recovery within a matter of weeks. It didn't take very long at all. And uh, it was one of those suddenlies that had taken years. And he uh, is, to this day, uh, I have contact with him. He's now probably five, six years sober, very active in AA, uh, involved in his church, uh, finishing his college education. His life has turned around. It took her letting go, which gave me the opportunity to drum it into her head that uh, what a big lie she'd been believing and that he would have gotten sober years ago if she got out of the way. <laughs> I know that one of the ways that you cope with the gravity of this work is through use of humor um, because it is so scary. I think that's what it's become for people that are suffering from addiction and for their family members, terrified of what it would mean to stop, terrified of how much pain they'd be in, especially considering what substances they might be using. And then for family members, terrified that something bad is going to happen to their child if they don't do the right thing. Um, and it sounds like with this case example, it was a matter of really getting to the root of the fear that this client had in what might happen if she didn't support her son and for you to help nurture her different relationship to her beliefs and to her thoughts and how that could change um, not only her feeling, but then her behavior and how it impacted her son. I can hear the, um, the kind of sparkle of systems theory starting to appear in that of how one factor is is affecting everything else around it. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about um, some of the principles regarding working through these faulty belief systems? Like what are some of the catchphrases and the approaches, the interventions 
that we can use to address and gently challenge these faulty belief systems? I try to set that up in my assessment process. I, I usually, I'll take sometimes three or four sessions and we're just doing assessment. Uh, I, uh, one of the things I have uh, begun, begun including is a, a, a spiritual assessment. Uh, I've been begun using a, a beliefs inventory that I don't even remember where I got this. I've had it so long, but it has to do with Albert Ellis, uh, some of his irrational thinking. Uh, it's a hundred question uh, test that they take and score themselves. And uh, it gives a pretty good indication of uh, which of 10 irrational beliefs they hold most closely and, and buy into. And it becomes a good introduction to, to looking at that. Um, it's a good introduction to looking at if they have invalid thinking then probably their feelings are not based in reality. They're based on invalid thoughts and lead to inappropriate behavior that doesn't work. And so that way becomes a, a good uh, introduction. Uh, in, in the assessment process, I, I also, it gives me, taking the time to do that, gives me a chance to identify um, things they're leaving out, their deletions, their distortions, their generalizations they make that, that uh, you know, so to get down to the detail and, and begin to, to really correcting their thinking, which is naturally going to begin to change their feeling and help them to see the benefit uh, of that. And then from that, uh, in developing a, a treatment plan, and so being able to take that time uh, to do a really thorough assessment uh, and develop a treatment plan that includes belief systems, you know, then that just makes for a better, uh, I think, a better treatment outcome. Uh, it gives us a chance to include in the treatment plan the identification and, and modification of irrational beliefs you know, as a treatment goal and to begin to work, work toward that. The importance of the assessment in what you're saying is it sounds like it's really foundational to understand where they're coming from and what belief systems, um, whether that's grounded in spirituality or religion, or that's being handed down from families or culture mm -hmm. at large, whatever that is. When you're out of the assessment phase, then where do you go in terms of the active counseling process? Using uh, motivational interviewing techniques, um, I, I try to just gently point out the discrepancies, maybe between their their thinking and 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 sometimes suggesting um, alternate alternative perspectives, different ways of looking at things, uh, or counterthoughts. Uh, Claudia Black uses that term, counterthoughts, and I, I kind of like it. And that uh, uh, kind of introduces the principle of displacement. I think to try and tell someone, don't think about 
an orange, you're naturally, the only thing you're going to think about is an orange. And so you have to displace that thought. You have to have another thought to, to take its place. And so I'll work with the client to try and, and come up with what is more realistic, what, uh, what could you think instead of that. And then I'll actually, they buy into that, and it's it's a mutual effort. I'll have them rehearse that. I'll oftentimes have them uh, uh, do do journaling uh, to track uh, when they have a feeling, you know, uncomfortable feeling, to stop on their own, not in session with me, but on their own, to write down what the thought is that they're having, and then begin to come up with maybe we've already established some counter thoughts that we've anticipated some of those things it's the same thing i do in in relapse prevention and, and most people they don't like to con, uh, consider their relapse uh, they don't like to but i say unless we predict your relapse and, and find out what are the situations the people places things that it can be triggers for your relapse and we're not going to have a plan to prevent it. That's the same with thinking, you know, that, that if we have not uh, identified uh, some of their negative or, or irrational thinking processes and come up with some counter thoughts, then when those things come up, they're going to be overwhelmed. It, you've got to have a plan. And uh, you don't want to go into battle without a battle plan. I don't think you should go into recovery without a recovery plan. And part of that is uh, a, a plan to stop, you know, and that's the challenge. That's the challenge, that nanosecond there where feelings come up and they're maybe very powerful. Your feelings get hurt. You're feeling inadequate, uh, afraid, whatever, and you're thought pattern that you've had for so long is that you shouldn't be feeling this and uh, to stop and challenge that and replace it uh, with a counter thought that it's, it's normal to feel this. It won't last. I can hear the identity challenge that comes into play. How do you work with that? That really, if we're starting to gently challenge somebody's beliefs and values and how that leads into thoughts, feelings, and then resulting behaviors, that really involves a pretty significant paradigm shift sometimes for someone to completely uh, question and redefine beliefs and values. How do you support clients when they're going through that to try to imagine themselves basically existing in the world very different than how they're used to? Number one, I acknowledge that it is a radical shift. You know, this whole, I've been really focused on this whole cognitive behavioral model for the last maybe year, year and a half. And what got me started was uh, actually a Bible scripture. In our church, I do a men's group. And the scripture that we've been focusing on is in Roman, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing to, to the people in Rome, and it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might know 
God's good and perfect will for you. And so I, I looked at that and I said, well, that's just cognitive behavioral therapy. It, it's really, you know, we need to change our thinking. And, and I don't think that just means we need to memorize the Bible. It means we need to examine our thinking in, in all kinds of areas. Uh, and it does become uh, absolutely a matter of identity. You know, in our men's group, in a Christian setting, we've really been taking a look at how God sees us, you know, because he doesn't see us um, as less. He doesn't see, he, he loves us, you know, a loving God. In recovery setting, I, I worked with a counselor for years, and he always put this in his treatment plan, developing a sober identity, you know, and, and that is key. That is key to recovery. And so I look at it as, as, you know, we've got the old you. We've identified the thinking and, and the feelings that went along with the, with the old addicted person. And then we've got this recovery person. And then the, the, the process becomes how do we get from point A to point B? You know, and what can we begin to do today to build that? And that every little baby step becomes a cause for celebration, and we count that as success. And and that's a challenge uh, because most uh, people with drug and alcohol problems have that uh, built-in need for instant gratification. Uh, they tend to be very uh, impulsive, and and uh, they they want what they want, and they want it now. And and so getting them to buy into the process is that that can be challenging in itself. As you're talking about this, I can hear how many different layers there are. So not only the uh, redefinition of self and kind of developing this recovery identity, recovery identity, but then also the practical steps of what it means to be out in the world and carry yourself differently. So you talked earlier about how sometimes recovery planning has to do with changing literal behaviors. And you introduce this idea of like, yes, but what about the thoughts and feelings that are originally driving those behaviors? And it sounds like really you're working on lots of different um, levels all at one time. So if you're supporting somebody in their recovery, maybe you haven't gotten to the thoughts and beliefs about friendship or loyalty or connection. And yet the behavior that you're wanting them to make is to, to, not drive that way home where they would pass their dealer's house. And you want them to um, perhaps go out with friends that are sober and, and, or if they're not sober to not at least meet at a bar to go meet someplace where there weren't substances. So you're functioning on all these different levels all at one time. How do you explain that to clients of kind of, I'm, I'm going to do lots of different things all at once. And this is part of your treatment plan. By the time a client comes to see me, um, their life has become what, what the, the substances that initially expanded their life, or at least that they believe expanded their life, that hasn't been working for a while. And, and their social circle initially expanded, and now it shrunk because addiction is a disease of isolation. And, and so pe by the time people get to see me, they're, they're on their they're using alone. They're lying about it. They're hiding it. They're, you know, the party is long over, and uh, they've become rather one-dimensional. 
And so I introduced the concept of we're just going to make them multidimensional, and it's going to take time, and it's going to be a lot of hard work, and it's going to be really uncomfortable, and they I know all that up front. They make no bones about that, that recovery is not the easier, softer way. It's really hard. And it's also very rewarding. But the reward's going to come down the road probably a while, and you're not used to that. And so we just kind of get that out in the front. And uh, I try and just encourage them and support them and really point out to them the things that they don't see. You know, my, my experience is that people don't see their own growth. People don't see their own process nearly as well as others see it in them. Now, I always emphasize that recovery is something identifiable. People should see it. They may not know what it is. They may not know you're in recovery. Maybe they say to you, have you lost weight? Did you get a new hairdo? Uh, oh, did you go into the gym? You look, But something... It shows, and recovery should show. And so if they can't see it, and it's my job, I think, to point it out to them, that I see their growth and, and just really feed them, feed them with, with encouragement and support. Uh, oftentimes I feel like I'm a cheerleader, you know, but they need that. You know, most people haven't got, haven't received enough attaboys or girls in their life. And so that that's part of my role. You're suggesting this idea of inoculating them against the realities of what it means to be in recovery, of how difficult it's going to be. And also something I call, uh, it sounds like being the holder of the hope that you get to represent that for them and, and be somebody that is standing behind them and supporting them, walking alongside them and what really is probably the one of the biggest challenges of their lifetime. Um, Marty, you and I could sit and talk for quite a while. Um, what are some resources that you really recommend um, to individuals either that you're recommending, like either as a self-help resource or for clinicians that you've supervised, that you've worked alongside? Um, today, we've been talking about the interplay of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, underlying belief systems, and then how that comes into the room with working with folks that are either in recovery or are struggling with codependency. Um, what books do you recommend? What websites do you like? Well, certainly uh, back up to old fundamental Albert Ellis, Aaron Beck, you know, books on that. They, they were into this back in the 50s. And uh, certainly those. One of the books uh, that I've read recently that really spoke to me uh, is a book called Renew, uh, Breaking Free from Negative Thinking, Anxiety, and Depression. It's written by a lady named Julie Winter. And it's written from a Christian perspective, but she also is a physician assistant. And so she brings both the medical background and the spiritual side of it uh, together. And I just think it's a, a marvelous book. And, and I think it would be very... Uh, uh, usable uh, for people who weren't necessarily Christian. I, I found it to be very, very powerful. Thank you for that recommendation. For our listeners, Marty, that would like to get in touch with you, uh, how do they do that? How can they find you and learn more about your work? My my practice is located in Ventura, California. My website is uh, 
martylithgo.com. That's uh, the spelling is is L Y T H G O E. Most people get that wrong. Um, that certainly can look on my website. Um, it'll tell a little bit about me, and I I've been writing a a monthly article of topics of of interest to me, and uh, I would love to hear from you. Thank you again for joining us, Marty. We really appreciate uh, not only your expertise today in doing this interview. But also, it sounds like the passion and clarity that you've been giving to your clients over all of these years. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate the opportunity. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.